Well, last week we studied uh, the book of Leviticus as we're going through the Old Testament, book by book. And I mentioned how Leviticus is special to many people, but usually for the wrong reason. For many, Leviticus is the book of the Bible that puts an end to their, through their Bible in a year reading program. They get through Genesis, they get through Exodus, they're excited, it's going well. But they get to Leviticus and all the rules and rituals are a bit heavy for them. And for some, they just kind of give up and that's as far as they get. Now, some are determined to get past Leviticus though, but then they face another hurdle in Numbers. Now, the title Numbers leads many to believe like that's what it's all about. It's just a book of numbers. And in the opening chapters, that is what you get. If you don't know better, you might think that's really all there is to this book of the Bible. That might put a stop to your Bible reading. But I'll say again, that would be a big mistake. For one, the number portions of numbers are still part of inspired scripture. You would do better to to spend time laboring and asking, why are these here? How are these profitable? Why did God have these recorded? What's their use? That there is a lesson in them. But secondly, though, the numberings, they actually comprise a very small portion of numbers. The, the title can be misleading. Most of this book is actually, you know, action-packed with pretty rich narrative about Israel's wilderness wanderings and, and journey to, leading up to, the promised land. Numbers has some of the best narrative episodes in the entire Old Testament. And the New Testament draws on key lessons from Numbers. And so we're going to find again this evening that numbers like Leviticus should be special to us, but for some better reasons. These really are rich books of the Bible that you would do well to get to know. And that's our goal in this series on Sunday nights, getting to know the Old Testament, trying to just study these books of the Bible at a higher level, book by book, just one book per evening that we might know God's word better. So we're going to do that tonight with numbers. So you can open your Bibles to to numbers. We'll be flipping around, but we'll be in, obviously, numbers. And we'll start, as usual, with uh, some basic background, getting you a little intro to the book overall. Now, the title numbers in English comes from the Greek uh, Septuagint, which was numbers. But again, it's kind of a misnomer because only five chapters deal with numbers. Chapters 1 through 4, chapter 26. Most of numbers, though, has nothing to do with numbers. And the original Hebrew title for the book was In the Wilderness. And that's a much more fitting title. That's really what the book is all about. Israel's time in the wilderness. The author, still Moses, as with the rest of the Torah. We we see Mosaic authorship pretty clearly in the first five books of the Bible. It's attested in the last book, or rather the last verse of Numbers. So this would be Numbers 36. If you look at the very last book, Numbers 36, 13, or the last chapter rather. Finishes and says, these are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan opposite Jericho. So it's the same as with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You see this introductory formula, you know, and the Lord said to Moses used throughout. Moses is the mediator between God and the people. And the events recorded and especially the law given passes through Moses He records it for Israel and their posterity. We'll actually find how important it is to have regard for God's mediator in numbers. The audience, so uh, from the title to the author to the audience, Numbers is an interesting book because it features this unique time gap, a significant fast forward in time, almost halfway through the book. 
Starts off by recording the happenings of Israel in year two after the Exodus. It's just the second year after the Exodus. But by the end of the book, that generation has, has fully died off. A new generation has arisen and it's preparing to enter the promised land. So specifically then for the audience, Moses writes numbers and he records these events for that second generation. The generation sitting on the plains of Moab, they're preparing to enter the promised land. And it's meant for, for them to instruct them not to be wicked, rebellious, and unbelieving like the first generation, which just died off in the wilderness. And so its primary audience, or we, should say, we could say its, its first original audience was that second generation of Israelites, that they would not be unbelieving. But of course, it's, it's really written to all of Israel to learn that same lesson thereafter. The date spans between 1445 to 1405 BC, just, you know, the second year after the Exodus through the 40th year after the Exodus. That being said, all the events of numbers are recorded in in two years. It's either year two or year 40. All the events here comprise either year two after the Exodus or year 40 after the Exodus. Nothing in between is recorded in numbers. That's just part of their their aimless time of, of wandering. Now, uh, what's really important when it comes to numbers is the setting, just understanding the setting to the book, and that would be the wilderness. It's kind of a big deal. If you're going to understand the book of Numbers, you need to know a thing or two about this, the setting of the wilderness, and that dominates the book of Numbers. And Numbers starts off with all of Israel. They're still camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. They're still there. You know, giving Ten Commandments, they build the tabernacle. They're still all there at the bottom of Mount Sinai. It's now year two, the beginning of year two after the Exodus. The tabernacle has been completed. The people are being prepared to now march all the way up to the promised land and just enter and begin the conquest. And that's why as Numbers begins, there is a census. They're numbered. They're being numbered for war. That's the point of the census. Eventually, the people set out from Sinai. They journey into the wilderness called the wilderness of Paran. They're on the way to the promised land. That's not their final stop. They're just kind of camped out in the wilderness. It's like a a base camp. And from the wilderness, they're going to send out expeditions, send spies to kind of survey the land as they prepare to take it over. Now, but if you know numbers, you know, this is kind of where things take a turn because those spies come back with a negative report. Remember that? I think you do. The people, they don't trust God. They don't believe in his promises to deliver them into this land. They don't want to enter the promised land. So God judges them. He sentences them to wander in the wilderness until that whole generation perishes. And so that this, this place, the wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula, becomes Israel's home for much of these 40 years. They, they never leave. They enter that wilderness. And now they're just kind of stuck there. They're trapped there for essentially 40 years. And only after the 40 years are up, does Israel finally leave that wilderness region. They, they go up to the east of the Jordan as they get ready to cross the Jordan and begin the conquest. All this goes to say, though, if you're going to get to know the book of Numbers, you kind of need to get to know the setting of that wilderness region. What's it about? What's it like? It's word for wilderness used 300 times in the Bible. 50 of those are found in Numbers. That's a lot. And most of the times, if you look 
I don't know, in a picture in a Bible dictionary of the wilderness, it, it appears like a bleak desert, like the surface of Mars, like nothing could live there. That's not quite the case, though. Yeah, I mean, some portions were desert, but actually the wilderness was not worthless land. And to the Hebrews, the wilderness referred to wild land that was suitable for grazing animals, just not for cultivation. So you could keep animals there. It's just not the most arid or not the most, uh, it's too arid. It's not the most land uh, suitable for fields and cultivation. Grazing animals have no problem in the wilderness because they don't need much water and they can digest weeds. It's a little different for humans though. We, we can't eat the, the food that naturally grows in the wilderness and there's just not enough water for human life. And so the lack of food and water prohibits human life from flourishing in this wilderness region. For Israel to pass through the wilderness would have been hard, but not impossible. They could make, make do. But to be stuck there, to dwell there, the whole nation for 40 years was unthinkable. It's impossible, especially given the number of Israelites in, in the Exodus. The census puts the number of men 20 years on up, basically military-aged men, at just over 600,000. That's not including women, children, the elderly, the young. So that the estimates for the number of, of Jews in this time is between two to three million. That's a lot of people to, for this land to sustain. Unless the Lord supernaturally provided food and water for them, that they would not have survived. They all truly would have died with none uh, remaining. But in providing water and providing manna, God did supernaturally provide for the nation during this time as part of his sustenance for them. Though they are disciplined and made to wander the wilderness for a generation, God still provides for their every need uh, through this time. He sustains them as part of his, his character, his covenant faithfulness. He's the God who provides for his people. Now, the region of the wilderness forms like an upside-down triangle in that Middle East region. If you can think of the, the Sinai Peninsula in your mind, that the apex is to the south. If you think about this triangle, it's basically a, a 1,500 square mile region. And in that region, there's not a single river. There's not a real river in the whole place. There's springs. There, there are sources of water, but no, nothing you would call a river. And the wilderness, because of its just territorial hardships, it would prove to be a, a setting of testing, of trial. For Israel, just that the physical topography made their time in the wilderness a test and a trial. Well, we'll see how they do with that test and that trial. And nonetheless, though, God would provide for them. But this is the setting. This is the setup. And as we'll see throughout Numbers, be careful before you pass too harsh a judgment on Israel in the wilderness. We wonder how much better we would do under the same circumstances. I've not had the privilege to go to Israel on a tour yet, maybe someday in the future, but I've heard good stories from friends who've gone and they all seem to repeat the same story that, you know, they get on their nice air conditioning bus and they, they're touring the Holy Land. And one of the days they eventually go far south to the Negev, that's like the northern portion of the wilderness, but about as far south as they can go. And they just let, let them get off the bus and just kind of wander around in the wilderness. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of a cute thing to do. Here's, you pretend like you're in the wilderness but then they don't really let them back in the bus. They just kind of leave them there. And for like an hour or so, this is like very hot, no AC. And they just wait to see how long till they complain. Like how long is it going to be before they start complaining? It's like 10 minutes out of air conditioning, 20 minutes out of air conditioning. Like it's not even that long. And 
You're going to go back to a nice, you know, bus and with AC, but you know, I'm not sure we would do that much better. Well, let's get into a little bit of the structure or the outline of Numbers. Numbers is a, a diverse book of the Bible. It contains many literary forms. There's census records. There's genealogical records. Yeah. There's also large sections of law. There's poetry. There's prophecy in numbers. And then there's actually a ton of historical narrative. So you get a lot of numbers. Because of that, it, maybe the best way to outline it is just geographically. Because it traces Israel's time chronologically and through their, their movements. And so kind of in a simple fashion, you know, chapters 1 through 10, I'll just be kind of rough with this outline. You have Israel at Sinai, chapters 1 through 10. Chapters 10 through 13, you have their journey from Sinai to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, part of the wilderness. From chapters 13 to 20, Israel at Kadesh, kind of in the wilderness. Then from 20 through 21, Israel goes from Kadesh to Moab. And then 22 through 36, Israel at Moab. Primarily, it revolves around these three locations, Sinai, the wilderness, and then the plains of Moab. But above and beyond a simple outline, though, I more so want to help you grasp that the flow, and you might say that the movements in numbers, help you get to know the book a little bit better. In that regard, it has three parts, three distinct movements, you might say. In chapters 1 through 10, you have the obedience of the first generation after the Exodus. Chapters 1 through 10 is pretty good. It's just the obedience of the first generation. And then chapters 11 through 25, you get the, the disobedience of the first generation and their subsequent judgment. It's 11 through 25, the, the disobedience of the first generation. And then 26 through 36, that's the, the restored and renewed obedience of the second generation as they're ready to enter the promised land. The restored and renewed obedience of the second generation. So let me kind of, still big picture, but take you through these three, I don't know, sections or movements in numbers to help you better get how this book progresses. And it, it unfolds chronologically, but it also helps you grasp Israel's national history. So part one, uh, the obedience of the first generation after the Exodus you know, focusing in on the first section of Numbers, the Israelites were generally obedient. Chapters 1 through 6 deal with the organization of Israel around the tabernacle, where the tribes were, were organized in an orderly fashion. And these are not, you go back to Numbers 1, these are not aimless or pointless chapters. They all relate to how God is preparing to bring his holy nation into his promised land. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. In these beginning chapters, all the details are, are just set to show God is preparing Israel faithfully to enter this promised land, to go take the promised land. Moving on, chapters 7 through 10 deal with the orientation of Israel 
around the tabernacle. You have each of the leaders of the 12 tribes. They bring their offerings to the tabernacle to honor God. God's glory fills the tabernacle. He gives the people then a a visible representation that he's with them. And this representation of God would continue. The cloud by day, that the pillar of fire by night, it would stay with them. God was visibly showing them. He's their God. He's with them. He's going to go before them. He, he will protect them. He will, he will fight for them if they would only trust and obey him. In fact, go to chapter 9 just to see this, verses 15 through 23. Chapter 9, you see how, as it recalls the day when the tabernacle was erected, how God's glory comes down. Verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward, the sons of Israel would set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. And the the passage continues, but that's how it went. It actually looks forward for, for those full 40 years. That cloud and that pillar of fire was just perpetually over the tabernacle. And if it moved, they would pack up everything, the tabernacle and the their, their, their tents, and they would move with it. And once it stopped, well, they would set up the tabernacle right then and there. It could be for a day, a week, later it says even a year. They would just be following uh, the glory of God, and God was with them and leading them. Now, earlier in chapter 9, Israel celebrates its first formal Passover. Again, this is the first year after the Exodus, which means this is the first time they're really able to look back in earnest and remember what God did for them. That just one year ago, he brought them out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And through the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, God showed his power. He redeemed them. And so they celebrate the first real Passover. And that's also meant to help them consecrate their hearts to God in true worship, which should yield an ongoing trust and obedience. Okay, that's chapters 10, 1 through 10. This first section, it, it's no real problems. All is well. There there's, feels like a, a spirit of anticipation. The people, they depart from Sinai. They're, they're ready to go to the promised land. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. It says, now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran, so they moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. They set up that new camp, and from there, they're going to spy out the land and hopefully take the land. So chapters 1 through 10, it, things are, are fine relative, you know, obedience of that first generation. Then you get into part two, uh, chapters 11 and following, and you get the disobedience of 11 through 25, the disobedience of, of the first generation and their subsequent judgment. Things really take a turn in chapter 11. 
You see that the character of this first generation of Israelites, it comes out. And very quickly, upon departing from Sinai, they begin to complain. And theirs was not just a general complaining. It was directed toward the Lord. They were upset with God for doing this to them, for, for leading them out to the wilderness. Even though they were on their way to a better land, they didn't like the fact that, well, first, they didn't have meat to eat in the wilderness. All they had was this manna. I mean, forget the fact that this was supernatural food come down from heaven. God was providing them food from nowhere. But we're kind of tired of this. We would like some meat. They grumble. They complain against God. You start to wonder, does this people, do they really trust God? Do they really believe in this God? And Israel's disobedience, unbelief, and rebellion, it culminates in chapters 13 and 14. You can, you can head there. We'll look at some of those verses in a sec. But in chapter 13, that's where the, the 12 spies, they're sent out to, to spy out the land. And this is a recon mission. They were to learn the topography of the land, paying special attention to the major settlements. Israel was learning about the land's ability to provide for them. Also learning about uh, the cities and the settlements, the enemies they would have to overcome in the land. So the spies go out for 40 days. They tour the land. They bring back their report. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 27. Here's their report. It says, thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Now you look at that, that's, that's all fact, uh, all, all facts rather. Everything they're saying is factually true. But it's pretty clear that 10 of these spies are viewing this negatively, not with eyes of faith, but eyes of doubt. And they're going to try and dissuade the rest of Israel from, from proceeding with the plan to enter and fight and take this land. You now verse 30, Caleb interjects. Caleb was one of the spies says, then Caleb quieted the people because they were probably in an uproar before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. I mean, the facts were the facts. It was populated. There were strong people living in the land, but you know, didn't God say he's going to deliver us and give us this land? Like we should still go. Caleb looked at the facts through the lens of faith. And he's like, well, I'm still ready to go. But verse 31 But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they're too strong for us. That was true, but they weren't too strong for Israel's God. And these people were not looking at the facts through the lens of faith, but the lens of doubt. And so they begin to exaggerate the situation. They're trying to, again, dissuade the people from, from obedience. Verse 32, it says, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying the land through which we've gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. 
And so we were in their sight. This is a report of people who were a people group who had many giants or people that may have been six, seven, eight, nine feet tall. There were reports of that in the ancient world. You look at uh, Goliath, for example. There were some like that. Whether that's true or not, whether it's just their exaggeration, clearly, though, the heart of these 10 spies was to just give a negative report because they didn't want to do this. They thought, if we do this, we're going to die. We're, they're gonna, we're all going to be killed. We can't conquer this land. Let's forget about it. And you know what? These 10 spies, they won over the hearts of the people. All Israel joined their voices in rebelling against God's directions. Their job was simple. Just spy out the land and just bring back a report. It, it never was up for debate whether or not they should enter the land. That was never the purpose. The, never, the goal was not, hey, tell us, you know, should we do this or not? How easy is this going to be? No, it was just bring back information. It was supposed to be a, foregone, a, a far-gone conclusion that you know, we're going to enter the land. We're going to do as God has said. But these 10 spies managed to lead all of Israel into turning their hearts against this plan to do as God said, to follow the Lord into this land. And so they rebelled. They refused to enter and they would not go. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. After all they had seen, the 10 plagues, the Red Sea, that the pillar of fire and cloud, I mean, all that God had done for them. And they get right up to the cusp of a promised land. If only they would trust and take a step of faith and obedience, they would have taken this promised land. But they, in a heart of unbelief and rebellion, they, they say no. We don't trust this God. We don't want what you have for us. We don't believe you. We would rather go back and be slaves in Egypt than follow this God into his promised land. This really is the height of unbelief and rebellion. And so God judges. And Moses intercedes. The people, Moses and Aaron, they try and intercede. They try and convince the people, verse 9, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. They will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Verse 10, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's how rebellious they were. They wouldn't even listen to Moses and Aaron saying, no, no, just trust God. They were wicked. And so God judges. At the very least, he has reason to judge. He has reason to just utterly wipe Israel out. Like start to finish just right there, incinerate all of them. His wrath burns against them for their unbelief, wickedness, and rebellion. Then Moses intercedes, and God is moved to mercy. He will not incinerate them, you might say, but still, they will be disciplined. Look at verse 22. He says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, it have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And for the sake of time, we won't do this, but you can read 26 through 35, really the rest of the chapter. And 
And God just tells them how it's going to be. That they're, every single one of them that was numbered in the census, that was supposed to take this land, 20 years old and upward, that they're all going to die. Maybe not on day one. Maybe not on year one. It might be year 39 and a half, but that entire generation is going to perish in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Not a single one of them will get to taste and see God's promised rest in the promised land. They will all perish in the wilderness for their unbelief and their rebellion. And this really is the crux of numbers. You know, despite God's prolonged grace, mercy, and redemption, people, they just still were not believing and so they are disciplined, they're judged, and that entire generation will die in the wilderness. And so they're sent back. You, basically, rather, they're, they're kept, they're trapped in the wilderness. They, they were in the wilderness, and now like, oh, this is your home for the next uh, 40 years. It's a tragedy, but hope is not lost. We get now to uh, part three. We're still kind of surveying the three major movements in numbers. It really helps, goes a long way in understanding the book. Part three, though. You have the restored and renewed obedience of the second generation. They're ready to enter the promised land. At chapters uh, 26 through the end. You know, after this though, after this event, there's a few more rebellions, believe it or not. But then Numbers leaps forward in time and goes all the way now to the last year, year 40. And just takes us right to the end of this wandering time. And by this time, the first generation has died out. A new generation has arisen. And chapters 26 through 36 mostly record the restored obedience of Israel. The sons of Israel are numbered again. There's another census as they prepare themselves to conquer the promised land. This second generation, for the most part, is obedient. They're ready and willing to obey God to conquer the land. And so God brings them to the plains of Moab where they will prepare for the conquest. We learn more about that in Deuteronomy. And then, of course, Joshua is the conquest. What's really amazing, though, is, is how God preserved Israel despite his discipline. If you look at the numbers of the first census in the early chapters, you add them all up. The total number of military men was 603,550. So just over 600,000. 600, but in God's judgment, all those people were going to die. In the wilderness, all 600,000 of them were, and, and more, because really that's just the men, but they're all going to die in the wilderness. You would think that's going to spell the end of Israel. I mean, how could a nation recover from that where just in a short time, all those people die? But it's amazing how God faithfully preserved Israel through the wilderness and through childbearing such that by the end of the wilderness time, there's a second census, the end of Numbers, and what's the total population then of military men? The second census, it's 601,730. It's basically the same. It's just, just a hair over 600,000. It just goes to show that despite the fact that the entire first generation died in a 39-year span, that God essentially sustained the entire population of Israel and that they all were replaced by a second generation. One which would, be, which would prove to be more faithful than the first. All right, so that's kind of a, still a broad overview of what Numbers is about and that the movements, that the sections in it and how it proceeds. We need to move on though. So let's, let's try and capture though the purpose, more of the, the explicit purpose of this book of the Bible. 
when we think about what Numbers is about. Can we narrow it down? And when Numbers was written, the main purpose was to show the Israelites, basically, here's why you just spent the last 40 years wandering the wilderness. It's because of the unbelief of your fathers. He's talking to that generation who's about to enter the land like, well, here's why you you were there for 40 years. They failed to obey Yahweh. They failed to heed Moses' intercession. And so they were judged. Uh, None of the first generation would enter God's rest, except a few, Joshua and Caleb. And this just spells out the consequences of rebellion and unbelief. And that's that's part of the the main purpose of, of Numbers, to show in a vivid way what God had told them before. He promises his blessing for faith and obedience, while his judgment is reserved for unbelief and disobedience. And Numbers pictures that in a very well, prominent way. But Numbers also powerfully captures the covenant faithfulness of God. And despite Israel's steady and constant complaining and rebellion, God never fully forsakes the nation. He can't. Even the people's disobedience is not enough to stop God from keeping his promises, which he made to Abraham. Again, we don't have time, but you can just write down Numbers 14, 11 through 19, if you want to read that later. That's when Moses intercedes for the people after the rebellion with the 10 spies. And God basically says, hey, once again, he's like, step aside. I'm going to wipe them all out right here. And Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. Remember, you promised. You promised to bring them into this land. You made an oath to their fathers. The other nations know this. What will they think of your name if we just wipe them out? And God was doing this to test Moses, and Moses responded rightly. He's, he's calling God and reminding God, although obviously God is not forgetting. He's calling God to his own promises, his own character. He says, God, verse 18 of chapter 14, you're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness. Forgive their iniquity. And God does indeed pardon and forgive. This is the response he wanted to see from Moses because, indeed, God could never fully forsake his chosen people. He may discipline them, but he can never fully forsake them. He has promised. He's sworn an oath to Israel. And here's what you have to understand about the nature of God's promises to Israel. Going back to the Abrahamic covenant. That God unconditionally chose Israel. That they would be a holy nation. Yeah, God would later bless the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That's us. But look, he chose to set his love on the physical descendants of Abraham. To set them apart as his holy nation. He would bless them, prosper them in a land of his choosing, multiply them. These promises to national Israel were unconditional. They still stand. Now, that being said, there's still a conditional side to God's promises for Israel. This is revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. That by God's own oath and vow, God would unconditionally bless and keep national Israel. However, for any one generation to partake of God's blessings, they had to believe and obey. They had to trust and obey. Individuals... And entire generations, however, could still be cut off for unbelief and for disobedience. And this is what we see played out in Numbers. That the very first generation after the Exodus turns out to be unbelieving and rebellious. And so they did not inherit God's blessing. 
But God could never entirely turn his back on the nation as this corporate entity because of his promises to Abraham. And so the nation was preserved. The generation to follow them would prove to be believing and obedient. And so they would get to participate in the unconditional blessings God promised for Israel. And so at the end of the day, then Numbers really highlights just the faithfulness of God to his chosen people. Israel was not deserving of this land, but they were elect, that they were a chosen people. God chose them. They rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, and, and those who did were disciplined. But you know what? They were still elect as a nation. And Numbers especially, we learn what it takes for God to turn his back on his elect. The answer is, is nothing. Or in other words, it, it's not possible. This, this God will always keep his promises to his people. Like Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from God's love. And for those who are his elect, nothing can separate us from his love. The purpose of Numbers then proves especially helpful for us today. Now, we as the church, we don't inherit national Israel's you know, land promises or physical promises, their corporate promises. But God has made plenty of new covenant promises to us as well. In the new covenant, he promises to make us his people. He promises to, to save us inherently. He promises to give us a greater promised land with a greater tabernacle, a greater high priest, and to bring us with him forever. We're not there yet. But we are meant to trust this God and obey him during our sojourning that we might enter his rest. And we can find a a real encouragement and comfort in the book of Numbers, knowing the character of God. Because even though we are now his people, let's face it, we still rebel. We still sin. You still sin, right? We still sin. We still rebel against this God over and over again. And he might discipline us. He does that for those whom he loves, his children, but... There's just nothing that can stop this God as he promises to to save those in Christ from fulfilling that promise. He will preserve his chosen ones to the end. His wrath will always give way to mercy for them. And that's just good news. That is a a powerful lesson because we can be wayward ourselves. But that comes back to us then to learn the lesson to, to not be, well, wicked and unbelieving like the generation that passed away in the wilderness And we should rather be those who trust this God, who obey him in all he says and does. Just just cling to him, knowing he'll be faithful and let us be faithful too. Well, time is flying. We're going to keep trying to to progress through this. I at least want to get through uh, the special focus as we kind of try and insert a special focus in these studies. And for numbers, despite the theme of God's faithfulness, I still want to highlight a special focus, namely rebellion. Because that just comes out over and over in in Numbers, the the theme of rebellion. Though God's grace is on display in Numbers and his willingness to be long-suffering with his people, still, man's rebellion is in full force. And you can go back to Numbers 11, although we probably won't read through these now for time, but I'll highlight just some of the, the key rebellions. And they just keep coming in the book of Numbers. You know, it starts in chapter 11. Now, technically, it goes back to the book of Exodus because Israel's grumbling and complaining against God began like right after the Exodus. So the book of Exodus records a lot of their grumbling and complaining. But in Numbers, it starts in chapter 11. Chapter 11, 
You know, verse 1, right away it says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them at the outskirts of the camp. It doesn't get much better than that. It just can, it progresses. Like they complain, they're judged, they're disciplined. Now, chapter 11, verse 4, there's more rebellion. They want meat. And so God's going to give them some meat. He sends quail from the east, and they have more than they can take. And as the meat is in their mouth, he sends a plague where so many of them die from plague in eating this meat, most likely spoiled meat. You get to Numbers 12, we find that the rebellion is not just among the people, but also their leaders. Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses. Is mostly Miriam herself wanting more authority, more power. But God comes down, he visits them, he basically vouches for Moses. Moses is his chosen mediator. God chose him. And God works through a mediator. You need to realize to rebel against God's mediator is to rebel against God. And so God strikes Miriam with leprosy, head to toe, white as snow with leprosy. Thus she's healed seven days later. Numbers 13 and 14, we already covered the major rebellion after sending the 10 spies into the land. They're sentenced to, to wander the wilderness. You think that would be it though. You think they would learn their lesson, but it's, it's really kind of just the beginning. Numbers 15, there's rebellion against Sabbath observance. Number 16, there's Korah's rebellion. Korah was a Levite, but he likewise wanted more power from Aaron, the high priest. He wanted more say himself. He gathers 250 heads of households and they rebel against Moses and Aaron. They had no regard for the Lord's anointed and for God's mediator. And so long story short, Moses devises a test for God to show like, you know, is the Lord with me or you? Let's find out. And uh, it's pretty clear when the, the ground opens up and swallows Korah, his whole household, basically all the households of those who rebelled. They're literally just, the ground opens up, swallows them, and closes up. Just imagine that happening. You think you would get it straight, like, okay, you know, I think we're going to just do what Moses says. He's God's mediator. We're just going to, like, stick with him now and just stop complaining. But it's so amazing, chapter 16, verse 41, the very next day, people come back and complain, like, Moses, it's your fault these people died. And so God sends a plague. 14,700 extra people die because the very next day they grumble, they complain. It keeps going, Numbers 20. Now at this point, we're actually at year 40. We fast forwarded 39 years. We're dealing with the second generation. They still complain. They still have lessons to learn. They complain about a lack of water. What's interesting here, go ahead and turn to Numbers 20. This time though, Moses rebels. Moses falls. Chapter 20, verse 8, God tells them the people complain about water. And God says, hey, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. God tells Moses, I'm going to provide water, just you're going to command the rock. And that's going to be miraculous. It's going to pour forth water. But Moses, he, after 40 years, in a way it's understandable, but it's still disobedience. He's frustrated with the people's complaining. And so verse nine, Moses took the rod from before the Lord 
just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly. The congregation and their beasts drank. So he provided water. But there is a problem. Moses did not heed the word of the Lord. And this just shows the stark holiness of the, of the Lord. That Moses did not fully regard the Lord as holy in this instance. And so verse 10. Or verse 11 rather. Nope. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses himself and Aaron are disciplined. They're still saved. They're still in God's love, but they will not enter the promised land. They too will die in the wilderness. And God shows from top to bottom, you will treat him as holy. Uh, Rebellion, even amongst the, the top leaders, is not tolerated. Rebellion is serious sin before the Lord. And he continues in Numbers 21. The people draw near to the promised land, but they complain for lack of food and water. And this is where God sends serpents, a plague of snakes. You can also picture this. Just a plague of snakes, like a swarm of locusts, a swarm of snakes, biting people and and poisoning them. But, you know, you actually learn in Numbers 21, this second generation is different from the first because after they're complaining, after this plague, they quickly repent. They quickly realize that we have sinned. They, they call to the Lord on forgiveness, or for forgiveness. And God provides a means of, of uh, healing for them with the bronze serpent. And as Moses holds up the bronze serpent, as the people look upon it, they'll be healed. And it's a, a wonderful picture the New Testament draws on of Christ, as you might know, where the snake represents their sin. And it, it's just a simple show that it requires an act of faith to be saved. There's nothing magical about that bronze serpent. It's just showing in God's promise, if they do what God says with an act of faith, they'll be healed. And we know that's a picture for us of of Christ as well. Look, we could keep going with this theme of rebellion, but but time really does escape us. The amount of rebellion in numbers is staggering. You'd think the people would learn their lesson after one or two judgments, but it just goes on and on. This just goes to show you, though, that, that sin and rebellion, they're deep in the heart of man. And that's what comes out unless man receives a new heart. The first generation was wicked and rebellious because they were unbelieving. And even true believers like Moses can lapse into rebellion that we still fall short. But we need to take this seriously and be diligent in our own efforts to treat God as holy in our own lives lest we fall into his discipline. But again, we take comfort in the knowledge that for those with true faith, God may discipline them but he will always be with them. He will never leave them or forsake them. He's faithful and he will fulfill his promises to bless his people and bring them to his eternal rest. And despite Israel's waywardness, rebellion, and sin, uh, ultimately because God preserves them, you see just uh, the magnitude of God's grace. His long-suffering is grace and mercy for his people. And that's something we should take comfort in. I know we're a bit over time. If you'll humor me for just a, probably a couple more minutes, a last section I wanted to cover application for today. At least we'll get through this to finish off our time, though. I think it's worthwhile to just to point out. I'll throw a th- few things at you, though, as you think about 
numbers in Israel's wilderness time. In Israel's time, and there are hardships in the wilderness, it did not make them sinful and rebellious. All their trials in the wilderness rather brought to the surface their sin and rebellion that was already in their hearts. God's testing in the wilderness really merely revealed who they were, and that was wicked and unbelieving. What the people needed, though, became clear, and that was new hearts. Moses could not give this to them. Moses himself, in the end, was proven to be a sinner. He, too, needed redemption. You know, today in the church, though, we can be thankful that a greater Moses, a greater mediator and intercessor has come. That Christ came to give us what we needed in dying in our place. And Jesus, he died as a perfect substitute sacrifice. But you understand, he proved his complete holiness by enduring all hardship and trial and tribulation and affliction. You guys remember, it's no coincidence that at the outset of his ministry, at the very beginning, Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights where? In the wilderness. And it doesn't say explicitly, but it's almost surely, well, it's definitely to the south, the Negev, but he may have gone as far south as the wilderness of Zin or the wilderness of Paran where Israel was wandering. But at the very least, he too was there in the wilderness without food, tempted by the devil, tempted by hunger. But Jesus did not grumble or complain. He did not rebel against the Lord. He did not succumb to temptation. He trusted God and he obeyed and the Lord delivered him. And as we reflect on numbers, we see ourselves, we see a foil of ourselves. We, we would do no better. If you think so, well, just remember the fact that you're a Christian, yet you still sin. How often do we grumble and complain against God for the things we don't have, for you know, how, how much we think God should do for us? We still sin against him, which is rebellion. But we should thank God, though, that, well, he sent Christ. We don't need a bronze serpent. He sent the Savior to die on that cross to, to actually pay for our sins and do for us what we need to give us new hearts that we might be believing, that we might obey, that we might enter God's eternal rest. And uh, one, I guess the last time I'll say, for the sake of time, just write down, make this your homework. Do this for real, though. Don't just like forget about this. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 is a special passage that, that draws on the events of numbers. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, where you know, Paul reflects on this and he recalls the lesson of numbers. And he, he recites Israel's history in numbers. You know, Israel was freed from slavery, but they misused that freedom. Because they were not true worshipers. They were idolaters. And so they, they turned their freedom into immorality and rebellion. And as a result, they were judged. But as Christians today, we realize we've been delivered from a greater slavery. Slavery to sin. And God has likewise promised to deliver us to a greater promised land. In the meantime, we enjoy freedom from sin. But we are to use that freedom wisely, not as an opportunity for the flesh is what Paul unpacks in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. And you know, God still tests his people. It's not wrong to think of this whole life as our wilderness. Obviously, figuratively speaking, but this, is, this life is our testing. We're in the middle of our exodus, our deliverance from sin, and, and but we're not yet to the promised land of heaven. Those parallels are intentional in Scripture. We're in our wilderness. We are being... In this life, we, we will certainly be tested and tried. 
many trials and tribulations, but we're reminded God is faithful. We must only learn the lesson to trust him and to obey him. And meanwhile, overcome sin, idolatry, and rebellion. That God is with us to preserve us as we trust and obey. And this is where that, that famous verse comes that you might know so well. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. At the end of this section, after recalling Israel's failures to trust God and obey, we should, do, to, uh, we should do different. And he says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Israel could have endured the, uh, endured the wilderness time without falling into to sin and rebellion, but they were wicked and unbelieving. But as we make Christ first in our hearts, as we turn to him, trust him, believe him, follow him, we have this assurance that, well, God is with us. He's faithful. He will preserve us, uh, but we can do our part in, in uh, following him and seeking him and his will and finding that way of escape that we might endure what comes our way. Well, Sorry, I kind of rushed to the end here when we're still over time, but nonetheless, hopefully that helps you get a little better handle on numbers. Man, it's, it's hard for me to condense a whole book of the Bible into one evening. Those of you who know me know that well. It, this is hard. The numbers is a great book. There's a lot in it for you to learn. And so I hope you take some of that with you and that enriches your own study of God's word in numbers. How much we can learn about our own life, our own trials and tribulations. But when we set our heart upon God in faith, in obedience, and in trust. Let's make that our prayer. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, that is indeed our, our, our prayer this evening, that as we re- reflect on our own lives and the own wilderness we might walk through in your testing of us, that we would respond in, in faith, trust, obedience, love. We thank you that you sent the ultimate Savior, the ultimate and final mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took our sin away into the wilderness, removed it far from us, that we might be holy and clean before you. Because, Lord, we know that we are rebels at heart. We are sinners at heart. We do go astray and wander from your good path. But we thank you for your greater grace and your faithfulness to your promises to save your people. And that's us who trust in Christ. We need to take comfort in that. But I pray that also builds our resolve to, to follow, to be holy, and to use our freedom to, to follow you all the more. Uh, as we anticipate the promised land. So bless us and just uh, purify us as we learn about these truths in our own walk toward Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.